I know that some among us have grown up in the Anglican tradition of the Episcopal Church, but also that many of us did not. And if you did not grow up inhaling this slightly rarefied air, then you might remember your first experience or two of Anglican worship. And you might have been drawn to it, or you might have been revolted by it. It just sort of depends on where you were that day. But, but you knew that what we do here is not easily graspable immediately, at least not as, as a whole. And the reality is that however much we invest in trying to make our worship easier to follow, printed bulletins, classes, pithy pamphlets and the like, it's still not worship that is immediately accessible to us the first few times we try. We're not trying to be obscure. It's just that our worship is designed for a lifetime. Our worship is designed to see us through all of the seasons and stages of our lives. And it's reflected in the seasons of the year. It's reflected in the readings, reflected in the music, reflected in some of the practices, such as the, the Great Litany, which we do once a year, the earliest part of the English prayer book, and a fairly liberal move because the litany, which was a procession, prayer in procession, uh, was not something we had to do on our knees as we made space and time uh, holy and marked it in that way. So, so the reason is not that we wish to be obscure. It's that it's for our lifetime. It's rich and multi-layered. There are many words which sometimes we have to allow simply to wash over us to access the even more effective reality of what we do with our bodies, for example. And as we orient ourselves over and over, as we turn again and again to that which is of ultimate worth toward what really matters, we read a lot of scripture and we enjoy a lot of words and a lot of music with widely varying styles and history. Same for our prayers, ancient and modern, as we align ourselves with the faithful across the world and down the ages. And so many who have been here for years will testify that from time to time, we find ourselves hearing something that we've heard all our lives, and yet hearing it, as it were, for the first time, as a gift, almost as though we've, we, we've never heard it before, hearing something in a new way or with newness of life that is itself a gift of grace. Now, I don't know why this has been true for me over the past year or so. I have not discerned that yet. But I have found myself thinking more and more and being particularly struck by the silence that we observe after the breaking of the bread, after the fracture. Now, I've always known that that silence is the, is the three days in the tomb. It's, it's, the, it's the, the silence that, that comes following the, the breaking of bread, where often the person presiding will make the sign of the cross, even then raising death and resurrection. It's that, it's that time of, of waiting it's a time where we prayed, thy will be done, uh, that most frightening of prayers. And we're silent, not for long, but for long enough for the question, the fundamental questions of faith in the face of death to come to us. Our Lord is in the tomb. Will you put your whole trust in his grace and love? Will you then be raised with Jesus? Will you follow? Will you allow the power of God working in you to do infinitely more than you can ask or imagine? Will you once again, with all of the doubts, all of the brokenness, will you say yes, yes to life, yes to hope, yes to the God who is ever faithful to you? That's what's been echoing 
in my soul more and more. The silence is the silence of the three days in the tomb. But it's also the silence of the cross after Jesus bowed his head and died. And before that, it is the silence of Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he's alone and says, is there some other way, Lord? Let this cup be taken from me. Can I, can I, do I have to go into death in order to live with complete integrity? Is, is it possible that I can put my trust in you, the source of life, even as my life appears to be coming to an end? Those are all questions of silence. And those questions are preceded by a multitude of other times when the question of faith is asked. Will you, friend, put your whole trust in my grace and love? And it begins in our story with the temptations. It's the, the silence is the time of temptation in the wilderness as well, in which Jesus met in the silence the devil. And those are the questions we hear when we are living and when we are awake and when we are trying to be conscious and when we are uh, attempting to resist the sway of deathliness in our lives. And those temptations are also the questions of the silence when we break the bread together. That first temptation, we might not be terribly tempted to turn stones into bread. I think we're more likely to turn butter into guns. Can we forego our own self-protection, which always seems to be at the expense of others? Can we live without putting others down in order to have a sense of self, without ganging up, without gossip? We don't live by guns, we don't live by violence, and no more do we live by bread alone. We live by that word that calls us to courage in the face of our fears, to trust in the face of our hungers, by the word calling us to find ourselves in those days when we feel as though we are losing ourselves in some way, the word calling us to really trust in God for life, even when life is not terribly fun, and discovering through our most real fears that we are granted life in abundance and more fully the people we were created to be. Small actions of trust build trust, and we can live from strength to strength when we say a sober yes in the silence and look to be remembered or put back together anew when we remember what really matters for life. And that's not bread alone, but the word. Second, we might not be tempted, most of us, to throw ourselves off any pinnacles. We're more likely to be busy avoiding death, actually. We're more likely to do something else to tempt fate or to test God, in the words of Scripture, hoping against hope that we'll be all right, even as we do things that we know are bad for us, even as we know that we're being fundamentally dishonest with who we are, perhaps, or when we do things we know we're going to need to confess, those little things, the banality of sin that chips away at our soul, those things when you say, oh, to heck with it, I'm just going to let it go for now and worry about it tomorrow. We listed all those things in our litany today, but in our litany of penitence last Wednesday, our self-indulgent appetites and ways, our intemperate love of worldly comforts, our dishonesty in daily life and work, our negligence in prayer and worship, our failure to commend the faith that is in us. All of these things we could work through and 
take our time and remember what it is and how it is that we fail, really fail. And in the silence of the breaking of the bread, can we say, I will not put God to the test. I resolve anew, asking grace that I may not put God to the test. But the third temptation, which is all of them bound together in some ways, is where we really live. It's the temptation to power. It's the temptation actually to idolatry. See, we're going to love something. We're created to love something. Everyone loves something, however perverse that love may be. And idolatry is when we love things that don't matter in the end. Golden calves and trinkets and baubles, military hardware and the threat of destructive power over others, justified as defensive, or simple superiority over our partner or our spouse, whom we fear might be better than us, and we feel criticized. And so we desire to be right more than we desire to be in relationship. All idolatry, all worshiping the wrong thing, all part and parcel of Jesus' cross and our own brokenness, And in the silence after the breaking of bread, we might say, away with you, Satan. Worship God and God alone. Yes, Lord, I will trust in your grace. And I hope to be raised with Jesus once again. Temptation, Gethsemane, Calvary, always the question, do you choose life? Do you choose life again? Grace is not cheap. Grace is costly as we make the sign of the cross, the brokenness of the cross, the sickening reality of our fractured lives and Jesus' broken body in the breaking of the bread, the silence of the tomb with all its questions. Will you put your whole trust in my grace and love? Will you be raised with Jesus? And finally, the silence ends. Silence ends with Easter, costly grace. Yes, Lord, Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed and offered for us. And so we keep the feast of the kingdom, the first fruits of this new and renewed humanity, this humanity that is forgiven and loved and freed to live lives of courage as a sign and witness in the world. We are brought into being this new humanity by Jesus, it happens in us and it happens through us and it happens by us as we gather around the table, gifts being freely offered and gratefully received among all sorts and conditions of humanity. Every one of us seeking that abundant life, seeking to put our trust in what really matters and knowing that love is stronger than death. And so in silence, a foretaste of the silence of the tomb, let us respond to the gospel in prayer.